0: Today is a Palm Sunday. What is a Palm Sunday? That's when Jesus entered into Jerusalem openly, declaring his messianic kingship, and people enthusiastically welcomed him, waving with palm branches. When we look at the description of a Palm Sunday in the first written gospel, Gospel of Mark, we find the one thing odd and interesting. That is, more than half of the story was devoted to two disciples getting a donkey for Jesus. So let me read that story first, and I want you to feel the nuance of it. Mark 11, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Beth- Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olive, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, and which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord need it, needs it, and will send it back there shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying the colt? They answered, as Jesus has told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the call to Jesus, threw their clocks over it, they sat on it. We all know that Jesus purposefully rode on a donkey, not a stallion, to show everyone that he is king of peace, not another king of a force. Thus, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah 9, Said, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. Why did Mark and later Matthew and Luke devote most space of their Palm Sunday stories on the two stories fetching a donkey for Jesus? If I were a writer, I could do it in on one or two verses. Jesus sent two disciples to get a donkey and rode on it into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. See? The description of getting transportation for Jesus shouldn't be this long. If I were the editor, I would, I would shorten it, saying that this part is tedious and so unsexy. If I compare this odd uh, imbalance to a wedding day photography, imagine you hire a very expensive photographer, wedding photographer, and if your wedding photographer spent more than half of a shot on your groomman's getting a rental car, and then, you know, and then they taking pictures in front of a rental car and then decorating it with a just married and so forth. How do you feel? Some biblical scholars ponder on this almost mystery or seemingly wasted story of such a mundane chore in Jesus' Palm Sunday celebration. They also ask a question about who, who, who these two unnamed disciples were. Who got such a mundane, monotonous chore? Some say that they were unnamed for the task because they, they were unnamed because the task was very ordinary. That's actually a clue. Who do you think were the, these two disciples were among the twelve? Some New Testament scholars think that they were none other than James and John, the sons of Ze- Zebedee. And last week's uh, uh, passage told us that they were hot-tempered, and they asked Jesus if he wanted them to destroy the unwelcoming Samaritan with the lightning. Why James and John? When we study today's story, we can see everything clearly. And I hope we all connect James and John's story to Palm Sunday story. So we will see the contrast and ultimately the, uh, uh, the clear message of God's calling for us. So let me read Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 to 27. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those uh, belong, belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant. With the two brothers, Jesus called them together and said, that, You know that the rulers of a Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Palm Sunday tells us our Lord Jesus is a servant king. As the prophet Isaiah said 800 years before Christ, Christ is our suffering servant and sacrificial lamb. Thus, to follow Christ means to become servant. There's no uh, ambiguity about that. To follow Christ means to become a servant. The more we follow Christ, the more servant we become. This simple truth and the calling of a discipleship is very, was very hard for 12 disciples, as well as many of us. Today, I want us to examine our own understanding of a leadership and the significance of a life by listening to three sayings of Jesus for call for servant leadership. Today's story begins with a mother's, a mother's incredible, humble plea for her sons. Verse 20, The mother of a Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. It was an incredibly humble plea because she knelt down before Jesus. What's incredible about the kneeling down before Jesus? First of all, Jewish people rarely kneel down. When they pray to God, their usual posture is a standing. In New Testament, the verb kneel down appears only twice. Here, and the Ephesians three fourteen, when Paul was overwhelmed by the mystery of God that bring a Gentile and Jew together in Christ. And second of all, the mother of the sons of Zebedee was actually sister of Mary. I'll save the details here because I want all of you to take a John discipleship in our church, then you will learn all of this. So this means she was, the son, uh, she was the Jesus' aunt, and today she was kneeling before her nephew. By the way, verse 24 confirms this. When ten, the other disciples, heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. In the first time I, I read this, I thought, hey, this ten you guys, you, you ten disciples, you were slow. Give James and John a credit. And also, why don't you ask your mamas to bake favorite cookies of Jesus and make the same requests? The reason 10 disciples were upset was because they are not related to Jesus like James and John. They don't have a family connection. And here they thought the two disciples used a, a dirty tactic called nepotism. Can you imagine? You are more qualified than your Whoever, okay, other person, and then your boss chose the other guy because of uh, whatever, the nepo, you know, the connection of nepotism. So, verse 21, we hear Jesus replying to his mother. Jesus said, What is it you want? I want to tell you that Jesus is not just being polite to uh, his aunt. And let me show you, let me show you the same story, same request in Gospel of Mark. And here, I want to point out something more incredible about Jesus. If Zebedee's uh, mother or, you know, that James and John's request was incredible, you need to see Jesus' reply. Now, Mark chapter 10, 35. Then James and John... The sons of Zebedee, this time without their mother, came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, Rabbi, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. If someone asks you such a request, how do you respond? How do you answer? Especially that someone is, person who is very ambitious and conniving like James and John, and, they, and that person is asking you for blank check, I would be very hesitant to say yes. Even when my children prephrase their request like, uh, Dad, you love me, right? And can I ask you a favor? And then I become nervous. And I usually say, it all depends. Or I will say, if your mom agrees. Yes, I punt the ball to Jamie. Guess what Jesus replied to these ambitious brothers? Verse 36 of the Gospel of Mark. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Jesus here didn't give any caveat or condition like me, but he simply told them, Sure, shoot your request. First thing I wanted to see very clearly today is a desire of Jesus. First thing we need to know about Jesus' call for servant leadership is that we need to see the desire of Jesus. That is, Jesus wants to bless us more than you and I want to be blessed. Jesus wants to bless much more than we can ever imagine. Do you know God wants to bless us more than we can ever want to be blessed? Today, I want to share with you one of the most well-known and my favorite sermons of C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis is a great uh, 20th century Christian writer, you know, thinker, apologist, and most of us know him as the author of Chronicle of Banania. C.S. Lewis preached this sermon on June 8, 1942, in the Church of Saint Mary, Oxford, 1942 was a perilous time, just like today, because a German blister Greek and um, Blitzkrieg, the lightning war, uh, lightning war or air bombing, at the time was uh, causing massive damage all over the London and the surrounding cities, and the title of the sermon was "The Weight of Glory." By the way, you can Google C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, and then you can read a whole sermon in Google. And then the, this sermon came from, a, a text, from, uh, text comes from uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17. 2 Corinthians 4.17. And uh, I'm going to read it in King James Version because that's the, probably the Bible that he quote. For our light affliction which is, but for a moment, is working for us far more exceeding and everlasting weight of glory. For our light affliction is nothing but momentary suffering, and it is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Lewis called the scary bombing light affliction, with a Paul's lingo. And there, Louis, in that sermon he said this. Let me call let me read his uh, uh one. It would seem our Lord finds our desire not too strong but too weak. We are half hearted creatures, fooling about with a drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. God finds our desire too small and too weak, too easily satisfies you know, God's problem is not that we have ambitions, but our ambitions are too small and too weak. By the same token, God's desire for us and our success is far greater than we can ever dream or imagine. He wants, us, he wants to give us the best. He wants to give us not just any good or even any glory, but His own glory, the infinite love, infinite honor, infinite worth. Hallelujah. That's why God made us in His image from the beginning, and through Christ, God remade us and recreated us as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made for His glory. And Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, 20, that God is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask for, Ask or imagine. We are destined for glory. God desires to give us His glory. Amen? That's the first point. Now, second point. Second saying of Jesus we need to hear today is verse 22. You don't know what you are asking. You don't know what you are asking. Here, Jesus talking about debility. Debility and deception of our own desire. The problem, problem with our desire is, is that it's not only small and short-sighted, it is seriously ignorant, and we don't know what we are seeking. By the way, aren't you glad that God sometimes uh, did not answer or does not answer our prayers for the same reason? Have you had an experience when God did not grant you a request? And actually said no to your prayers, but later you found out that was a God's blessing. I have one like that in my life. I had a one uh, very sad. Uh, I had a one, at the time I was going through a very very uh, difficult uh, spiritual time of uh, God's rejection. That was about twenty years ago. Uh, you and you can understand this better because. 20 years ago, I left my first ministry, Palo Alto, California, the church that I served for 10 years. And toward the end, well, throughout the time it was fun, but toward the end it was, real, uh, it was a real blessing. But I f- felt that God called me to study further and reconstruct my theology deeper. So I went to Princeton Theological Seminary for my second master. In the process of applying for PhD, I studied night, you know, early morning to late evening, and Jamie was practically was a single mother, and then I applied. I get all A's, and I, you know, people, I, I received a great mark for my uh, essays and so forth, and I applied, and they rejected me in the first year. It was a hard, because I thought God called me clearly. And then they were I left the church that loved me. So it was really hard. There were days that I was driving around the, the wilderness of New Jersey, the southern New Jersey, Alex Parker knows Plainsboro in the suburb area, and I was screaming to God in my minivan. Yes, it was a hard time. But you know what? In the second year, as I reapply, I began to see more clearly that Princeton was not the place for me to, finish, to to do a PhD. Then by then, God opened my eyes that I need to go where there is a master church theologian. People who do theology, not for their academic reputation, for the sake of the church. People who really care about the church. That's the kind of a, a, a master teacher that I want to learn under. Princeton has a great scholars, but many of them, they are very snooty. I'm sorry. Some of them are very good, but I'm talking about, you know, the impression of the school. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah. Since I just let the chicken out of the... Uh, let, let me finish my bashing about Princeton. There was uh, one particular professor, well-known professor. He always started the class like this. Now, whatever I'm going to teach you today, you will not understand now. But 10 years from now, you will appreciate it. What kind of uh, encouragement is that? As a teacher, that's a horrible. Anyway, to make a long story short, I, be, I now know where to study, how to, you know, what kind of teachers that I really want to have for the last time. And guess what? That led me to Baylor, my true alma mater, and Texas. And that's how God led me to forests. So Jesus corrected their dangerous request. And there Jesus said, Can you drink a cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but sit at the right or left of my side is not for me to grant. It's about to it's up to my father. Here, the cup that Jesus is a drink. We're talking about well-known throughout the Old Testament, like Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Ezekiel 23. Many, many places are talking about cup of wrath that people of God, they drink. And Jesus is basically telling James and John that if you want to sit right next to me, you have to drink this cup of wrath from God is a horrible punishment and judgment from God because that's the cup I'm about to drink. And now, how come James and John didn't know what they were asking? You know, uh, preceding text before our passage today, today's passage starts with a then, right? What is a then? If you look at the uh, Matthew chapter 20, going back to Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and there, son of man, will be delivered over to chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to Gentiles to be mocked and flocked and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. They didn't know what they are asking to Jesus because they failed to listen to Jesus' prophecy and Jesus' commitment to crucifixion and redemption. You know, this teaches a very important spiritual lesson about our prayer and our uh, our, uh, ambition. Every prayer request, every aspiration of our life, must be filtered through glory of Christ in the cross and resurrection. Why do I, you know, so ask yourself a question. Why do you want to get a good grade? Why do you want to go to good college? Why do you want to go to graduate school? Why do you want to get a well-paying job? Why do you want to get a, you know, whatever, very uh, good career? Or marry a great guy or girl? Or why do you want to have children? Everything, every prayer must be aligned with uh, Christ and His love for us that revealed in the cross and then confirmed in resurrection. Otherwise, our prayer, our blind prayer actually can make us and others miserable at the end, as you will see the next point. But before I go to the next point, I want to... I want us to know one thing clear. Just like disciples so are ignorant about Jesus' you know, uh, upcoming uh, passion, I don't want us to be uh, uh, ignorant about the Christian response to COVID-19. And that's why last week I sent out the email about the uh, email about anti-rights article that he wrote in New York Times last Sunday. Have you all received that email? You all received it, right? All right, let me see. How, if you read the article, give me a thumb. Yeah, okay, praise the Lord. I see a good number of you. Yeah, it was not a long article. Those of you who haven't read it, well, go back and read. It takes only 15 minutes. You know, in that article, there was, I mean, that is a great theological, biblical reflection. This is why I highly recommend N.T. write. And he's writing to everybody. You know, Anti Wright, he said, you know, uh, I want to read some quote. It's a long quote. So I'm going to cut down the quote into the middle. Anti Wright basically said, the right Christian response to COVID-19 is, a, first of all, he said, avoid the Christian rationalists and romantics. Rationalists wants to have an answer. Some Christians want to give an answer. We are so answer-driven society, we, by effect of enlightenment, we think everything must have an answer. You know, sometimes things don't have an answer. And so I hear some people say, oh, God, you know, it's the will of God for us to have a COVID, you know, this kind of pandemic. Don't say things like that. God doesn't, God doesn't take a delight. God knows what happened or what would happen. Yes, This is still under God's control, but that doesn't mean God is in control of everything, including uh, this pandemic. doesn't mean that God caused it. There's a difference between God knowing about it and God causing it. God didn't cause COVID-19, so don't ever equate the foreknowledge with some kind of ordination. Calvinists might say, but I'm not saying it, and the Bible doesn't tell us to say that. So don't go for that direction. If you think that direction, bring it on to me, and I'll, I'll talk to you. The second point is that uh, as anti rise are romantic, some people want to give an easy uh, a relief or comfort about the situation. That is also dangerous. Because uh, it's, it's really incredibly hard, hard. And we don't know how long this, this, this affliction will continue. And then anti-right brought a biblical uh, point. Perhaps, now I'm reading the article, the middle. Perhaps, what we need more than either is to recover biblical tradition of a lament. Lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. It's where we get to when we move beyond our self-centered worry about our sins and failings and look more broadly at the suffering of the world. It's bad enough to facing a pandemic in New York City, New York. What about a crowded refuge camp on a Greek island? What about Gaza? South Sudan? What about, I will say, Venezuela? What about Ecuador? I have a nephew in Ecuador. And Ecuador right now is uh, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is uh, breaking out. And there's uh, one particular province, uh, Guaya, uh, Guaya, Guaya, Guaya. They have over 3,000 you know, infections and several hundred people are, uh, died. And then because the weather is a warm, all that corpse uh, stench is horrible. Families are bringing corpse in the, out in the street and government is so ill-equipped and they cannot pick them up. So smell of death is in everywhere in the province. At least in America, we have uh, this uh, refrigerator morgues. Are containing all these bodies. So proper response to COVID-19 is a lamentation. We lament with God. You cry out to God. We pray that God will make all things for good through this so that we all realize that suffering and death and, and, and is so close to all of us. Now let me go to the third and final point. So Jesus got together all disciples, and he told them, verse 25, You know that rulers of Gentile lord it over uh, over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Indeed, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Once again, Jesus has no problem that our desire to be great among people. That's Okay. But Jesus said, become a great among you in right way. On that note, let me quote a, a, a commentary of R.T. Friends, good Matthew scholar. He said, natural human concern, I might say obsession with the status and importance is a clearly one of the most fundamental instincts, which must be unlearned, unlearned by those who belong to God's kingdom. It means all disciples and followers of Christ must relearn how to see and use our social status and self-importance with a kingdom perspective. So here, third point is that Jesus give a clear direction and demonstration of a greatness. So, those of you taking note, the first point is the desire of God. Second point is the divinity of our desire. Third point is the direction and demonstration of Jesus' greatness. Here, first off, Jesus contrasts the false greatness in the world with the true greatness in the kingdom of God. False greatness loves a strong, selfish leadership. Leadership for them is nothing but a power play. I'm your boss. I can fire you, control your life. And you better listen to me. You better do everything I say. This is a very much power, play. yeah, power play. They use the uh, their leadership as a personal perks. The best illustration of a, such a godless leadership is illustrated J.R. Tolkien's work, The Lord of the Rings. In this trilogy, the ring represent power. The owner of the ring has remarkable power and could rule the world, but What's the uh, debility? What's the deception of that power? The power destroys its possessors. So Gollum had a ring for ages. It turned the Gollum into soulless, wispy, creepy creature. As the story unfolds, Frodo, our main character or hero, claims the ring, but we to—he slowly destroys him. At the end, He is unable to part with it only by providence of God. He escaped from his dark power, and they could destroy it. And second off, by contrasting, in contrast, Jesus said true greatness practices servant leadership. Here, look at it. Jesus brings up three important words to describe leadership. So if you, so, I want us to really examine our own leadership with these three words. First of all, Jesus said, If you want to be great among you, you must be servant. The Greek word for servant is diakonos, from which we got the English word, deacon. Diakonos, deacon. And then second word, Just as son of man, uh, and, and whoever wants to be first, must be slave. The word "slave," Greek word for slave, is a "duolos." Duolos. Some uh, philo- uh, linguistic, linguistic uh, uh, lingu- linguists, they think that a Spanish word or Latin word "dolor" came from this Greek word "duolos," word for slave. So Jesus, so servant is a kind of nice word, you know. I'm civil servant, you know. You know, you can use a servant. Slave is a totally different matter. Slave means you have no right of your own. You are basically a thing to be used. You are a commodity to other people. And then ultimately, Jesus said, verse 28, Just as Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. So three words Jesus gave us to examine, our leadership, servant, slave, Ultimately, sacrifice. Servant, slave, and sacrifice. Starting from very gentle, nice, respected function to hard function and almost impossible function to the end. You know, COVID-19, this pandemic, is really revealing one thing clear in our society. That is, who is a really, really unsung heroes in our society? Real unsung heroes in our society are the servant. Not just the doctors and nurses, you know. I mean, these healthcare, you know, uh, pharmacists and the ambulance drivers, police and firemen, these are all great. But what about the grocery store workers? What about the restaurant workers? You know, yesterday, yesterday or the day before, I went to uh, pick up a, a pizza. In our, in our town, and uh, people who are working there are all Hispanics. Viva Latinos. All the white people, the white owner wasn't there. It's all Latinos is working. Literally, they are saving us. COVID-19, this pandemic, is revealing the servitude in our society. It's not just testing our immune system. It's really testing our servitude. Actually, speaking of servanthood, I know a lot of families are going crazy with the cabin fever and the servanthood really challenged. Now, now, Jesus said, I mean, so we hear, I hear this comment from everywhere that Winston Churchill gave in years ago. That was never was so much owed by so many uh, to so few, right? Never was so much owed by so many to so few. You know, that uh, quote of uh, Winston Churchill was uh, given August 1940 in the heat of, the peak of Battle of Britain when Hitler was about to invade uh, 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 England and sent out the German Luftwaffe airplane and the bombing everywhere and the Royal Air Force, they went up. And they, more than almost half of them, wiped out. Many of them, many of them, uh, fly several times a day. fend off the German uh, offense. That's when Churchill said, "In history, never so many or so much to so few." Now, I want to conclude my message with once again the C.S. Lewis sermon. You heard me that uh, I gave, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis gave this sermon at the middle of the World War II. But let me give you a little bit about the background of uh, this context of uh, this sermon. C.S. Lewis, he became a Christian in 1931 at the age of 33. It took a while for him to recognize Christ as his personal Savior. It took us several years of intellectual wrestling, and uh, finally became a theist two years before, through the friendship of J.R. Tolkien, and then two years later he became a Christian, and he wrote that that is, uh, well he wrote about that one evening in September. Lewis had a long walk. A long talk on Christianity once again with Tolkien and a friend Hugo Dyson. And that evening discussion was so important that Lewis recorded in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. When we set out to Wisney Zoo, I did not believe Jesus Christ was Son of God. But when we reached the zoo, I did. Do you hear before he left for the, you know, took a walk, he wasn't, he didn't recognize Christ as a Savior. But at the end of the walk and talk, he received Christ. And afterward, Louis to share the gospel, his newfound joy, immediately. But at the beginning, he was doing very indirectly, such as writing fantasy novels like Out of a Silent Planet. But when he found out the people are not getting his Christian motive, And then 1939, World War II broke, and soon all kinds of bombing and everybody's dying, C.S. Lewis became very vocal and very direct about sharing the gospel. And when he started doing that, actually, that's when he started talking in the radio, you know, British radio, and then some of the essays later collected, and then, One of the famous, you know, collection of these essays were called, entitled, Mere Christianity. Some of you read the Mere Christianity. Anyway, when he became very evangelistic, it made many of his friends very uncomfortable. Especially, he was hated by fellow dons or professors of Oxford University. And partly because they envy his international fame. They complained that C.S. Lewis did not keep his uh, religious views in private, but kept making it public. So this sermon, the weight of glory, was born in the midst of this spiritual battle, along with a physical battle. So let me read an ending paragraph of this. Actually, I'm reading farther than the uh, quote that you're looking in the screen. The Lord, or weight, or burden of my neighbor's glory, should be laid on my back. A Lord so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of a pride will be broken. What is saying is this. Evangelism is only for the humble. Proud people cannot be sole winner. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember dullest, and most uninteresting person you can talk to, maybe one day be a creature which, if you saw it or not saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror of a corruption such as you now meet, if for all only in a nightmare nightmare. You know what is C Sulu is saying is this people we are talking, they are potential gods if they know Jesus Christ and become a child of God. And the people who don't know Jesus Christ is God and then they forfeit this blessing of being a child of God, guess what? They're going to about to live the nightmare. So all day long, in some degree, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of this destination. It is in the light of this overwhelming possibility it is with awe and circumspection proper to them we should conduct all our dealings with one another friendship or loves or play or politics now you can look at the quote they are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere moral nations culture art civilization these are moral their life is to us as a life, of net, net. Everything else is a mortal. But immortals, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit—immoral horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are meant to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind. It is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. C.S. Lewis was saying, no, nobody is ordinary. We are talking immortals. As a immortals, everybody has two possible destinations. Either destination of a children of God, God or goddesses, or the horrible nightmare. And he said, this is a serious, serious and heavy weight of glory that we are carrying on our back. And we need God's grace and mercy. And we also need utmost humility because God gave us a great treasure in our very fragile vessel. And he said, those of us who receive this calling, our fellowship is a marriage kind. When I read this quote, again, it reminds me of the importance of once again Our House Church. Do you know Our House Church? is a marriage kind of a play. We are both a rescue team and a recreational team. We play together and we pray for one another. We confess to each other and we care for each other. That's what God called us to be. And this pandemic's is challenging us because it took all the natural instruments of our fellowship and our life. God is humbling us. That God is calling us to pray for one another and to reaching one another whatever possible means. Thank God for the FaceTime and the Zoom and then Google Hangout and all, the social, all these online mediums. Even though We are just reaching out virtually, but let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if we encourage one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with a humble serving heart, God says we are great in His sight. Let's pray.